Welcome to Judgment Days, where we explore matters of religion, religious history and faith, and their impact on the world. I'm your host, Albert, and along with my co-host, Michael, we welcome you to join us on this journey. One of the main objections to the Bible, religion in general, is stories that people take literally, right? Right. And I think this is one of the things that turns people off, especially in modern times, that they people are turned off from religion because of these fantastic stories that seem like myths and, and fairy tales, right? People call it fairy tales. It's where you get the flying spaghetti monster in the sky phrase from. Right. Uh, <clears throat> and I think, and just from talking to you over the years, you know, you've really helped me better understand the Bible, stories in the Bible, just religion, any religion in general, um, what these stories mean. You know, um, there was a quote we read uh, that you sent me, or maybe I sent you a few days ago, that said that those ancient people told literal stories and we are now smart enough to take them symbolically, but that they told them symbolically, we are now dumb enough to take them literally. They were actually really smart and knew that they were writing metaphorically, and we're the ones that are idiots for taking them literally. The actual quote comes from John Dominic Cross, and he's one of the leading Jesus scholars in the world. Right, so these stories, particularly the Bible, they were written thousands of years ago, and it, from my understanding, back then, stories always were going to be fantastical, right? They always involved, not just in the Bible, they always involved uh, some element of um, su the supernatural or, you know, things that couldn't really happen, right? Right. Um, so these were, in, in the Bible, the, the, those we have those stories, but those are mostly, what, metaphors, allegories, right? Well, they're, they're a little of both. You know, a metaphor is um, a simple phrase. Uh, this would be a metaphor. Thoughts sailed across his mental skies. So sailing is what a boat does, right? And skies, sailing across the skies, right? So it's a metaphor. You know, we don't... Um, another metaphor would be sunrise. I'll see you tomorrow at sunrise. The sun doesn't rise. Yet we use this every day. Why would so many ancient cultures speak in this fantastic symbolism? I think it really boils down to the fact that a lot of those cultures, these are ancient cultures... And many of these stories began in spoken form. This is before mankind had writing. So what did ancient peoples do? They gathered around with their tribe. They gathered around with their people and they told stories. Say, picture uh, maybe Native Americans telling a story by a campfire. Africans telling a story where the, the, chief, the chieftain of the tribe sits and tells the people a history of their beginnings. These are what we call foundational myths. So everyone has them. If you study ancient Rome, the ancient Romans believed that their founders were Remus and Romulus, two men born of a wolf. They were born from a wolf. So this was a their- A wolf is a predator, meaning- Right, we're meaning they're strong, strong. we're a strong predator. This, right. is, this is common to all cultures. All cultures spoke this way. What we can do is be anachronistic, meaning we cannot force 
our modern way of thinking upon ancient peoples. When we read their stories, we have to read them the way they would have told them and the way they would have understood them. And a lot of times, they weren't as stupid as we think they would. There's no way the Egyptians could have built pyramids by being stupid. You had to be, you have had some kind of mathematical certainty, you know, certainty to, to how do you go about doing these kinds of things. But when it came down to storytelling, when it came down to telling the history of your people, it wasn't done in the modern way we tell a biography, say, like if we were to tell you about Abraham Lincoln. Again, these were oral histories. If people are telling their peoples the story of their beginnings, of their people, of their origins, of their land, they're saying this in a story form verbally, and that's transmitted from generation to generation verbally, like spoken. There's no written word yet. So the first story that comes to mind is the story of Cain and Abel, and I'll tell you what my understanding of the story is. Sure. Okay? And, and I was raised in the church. I never really paid attention much to, you know, the, the, the Bible and what have you. I was just there for the music and, you know, to, to be there as a kid, right? But now as an adult, but these stories you hear over time, right? Um, right. Uh, so my understanding of it is uh, one, they're brothers. One brother killed another brother. And the way it was taught to us is to love your brother, Right. Don't. Right. You shouldn't be. In, don't kill. Don't kill. There's in, you know, it's like, well, how, how could someone kill your kill their brother? You know, there right. was. But from from what you've taught me, there's an entirely other context to the story. So uh, what's the story in its basic form? And then give me the historical analysis of what it really means. Well, if you'll allow me to look at uh, Genesis chapter four, where it uh, begins telling you the story of Cain and Abel, I'll read some of the lines. Uh, so it says, the man had intercourse with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to, a, to Cain, saying, I have produced a male child from the Lord. Next, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Abel became a herder of flocks, and Cain a tiller of the ground. So here we have it that Abel is a herdsman. He's a shepherd. These were nomadic people that moved with the herd. Right? You have sheep on a hill. You keep moving to find new pastures, right? new places for the sheep to eat. Cain is a tiller of the ground, meaning he is a farmer. Farmers are by, very na by their very nature sedentary. Farmers stay in one place. For you to be a farmer, you have to declare, this is my land. My land. You don't come on my land. On my land, I'll now till the soil, as, as it says uh, Cain did, and I'll produce food that way. And um, Cain is the one who killed Abel, right? Cain kills Abel. So pretty much what happens in the story, the gist of it is that um, they both go to offer a sacrifice unto God. And a sacrifice would be a portion of what you've produced, right? You give that to God. So Cain gave maybe his first fruits, the first of his his crops to God in an, on an altar and gave it to God. It's usually burned. It was normally in those days burned. Abel would have given, say, like a sheep or a goat, you know, his best offerings from his herd. And the Bible says that God accepted 
Abel's sacrifice, but not Cain's sacrifice. It's about 18 verses in the book of Genesis. And I think what's really fascinating is that it really encapsulates the idea of the Neolithic Revolution, which is something we were all taught in school as kids. And pretty much about 10,000 BC, farming, farming and farmers began to replace nomadic herdsmen as the chief way of operating and, and producing food and creating a civilization. Right. So the idea, the very word civilization means people who build cities. That's what civilization means. Right. To be civilized means you build cities. The first cities, like Sumeria, was the first civilization that we know of, was built around farming. So, no, so what do you do when you, when you produce farms, when you have farms and you have people tilling the soil? That means you're staying in one place. But because there are other people who are nomadic, they come through your land. What do you need to do now? You need to start putting walls around your property. And that's the beginning of cities. Now, when you have a wall around your property, what do you need? You need protection from the outside. So you build the wall, then you have soldiers, then you have people that fight to prevent other people from coming onto your land. But then you need somebody to tell all those guys what to do. And that's when you get a king and when you get pretty much a hierarchy of people who now control how you live your life, as opposed to herdsmen who lived a free existence. They're constantly moving. So the story of Cain and Abel, I believe, is um, representative of the Neolithic Revolution in which farming replaced herds, herdmen societies or, or uh, pretty much Shepherds shepherd herds. societies. Yeah. You know, So this is, this is an incredible thing when you think about how Genesis, Genesis is telling you the truth. This is a truth. This is a historical scientific fact, the Neolithic Revolution. But it encapsulates it and puts it in the form of two brothers. And one brother kills the other brother. And one brother kills the other. Because during the Neolithic Revolution, there was just that. There were mass killings. Well, not so much killing, though. It's one way of life replaced the other. It did. Basically. But there were actually killing. People would kill each other over the differences. This is, this is historical. Like, they actually did kill each other over these kind of things. And it went on for centuries. Cain and Abel is representative of an entire period of time. But you're not going to, you know, if you're telling a story around a campfire, you're not going to say, you know, for the last several hundred years, we've been fighting over this way of life. One brother, Cain, another brother, Abel. Cain kills Abel. This one way of life forming has now taken over the way of life as we know we used to know it, which is shepherding, moving from place to place to moving place. place. We don't get place. cities from that. We get cities from staying in one spot and growing from there. And growing from there and growing our food in that. Now, one why spot. is it not? Why is that not taught to us? Um, where I, do we get? I, where do we get lost? I think um, a lot of the churches, their job is to tell you the story as it is written, so that they will give you that literal story. If I'm telling you the story, I have to tell it to you as it's written, right? But when you study history, the, the point of the Bible a lot of times is that you, if you're reading the Bible on its own and you're taking that as absolute history, you're going to come across a lot of contradictions and things that are clearly not historical. 
You know, there is absolutely no evidence for a man named Cain or a man named Abel. There's no evidence of an Adam or an Eve, although even scientists will speak about Eve, right, the mother of all of us, using the biblical terms to express those first homo sapiens, right? So um, I think a lot, of, a lot of times we're just not taught this because we're not, we have been forced to believe that you should take things literally when it's clear that the Bible authors were well aware of what they were doing and how they were telling a story. And it wasn't expected that you had to confine that story to the facts. That's what we do now. People think like reporters, give me the facts, ma'am, only the facts. You know, but in those times you told a wondrous story filled with all kinds of miraculous events. Mind you, the Cain and Abel story has no miraculous events. It's pretty much a straight on story about these two cultures clashing. But to, I had to no idea. It, but to do it, you have to express it in the terms of brothers because at the end of the day, all of you we're all, we're we're all, all brothers and sisters. Right, right. We're, we're, we're one species, right? So every time a murder takes place, it's not only homicide, it's fratricide. You're killing your brother. That's the way you have to see the story of Cain and Abel as well. Every time you murder someone else... Um, incidentally, the story of Cain and Abel, contrary to popular belief, a lot of people think the first mention of sin in the Bible is the Adam and Eve story, and it's not. The first mention of sin is the story of Cain and Abel. That's when the first time God uses the word sin. And he knows that Cain is about to kill Abel, and he tells Cain, Cain, sin is crouching at your door but you must master it. Meaning there's this desire, there's this impulse to want to kill your brother. I know what you want to do. You, you need to learn to master that. You know, that's the lesson for us today from Cain and Abel, to master that desire to destroy and to hurt others who think differently than us and who have a different way of life, a different way of producing. Right, wow. It's it, it's a cultural it's it's a historical story. Wow! It's, it's history. It's history. It's a real history in in a metaphor, in a parabolic story, in allegory, in an allegorical form. And these you said the story is written what ten thousand years ago around the the 10, story of Cain and Abel can probably be traced back three four thousand years ago in written form. Which means orally it must have gone on for much longer. Right. Because it, it contains the memory of this battle that took place for centuries, literally centuries, this constant struggle between these two ways of life. Okay. The Bible mentions unicorns. Is that right? There are, there are about, I believe, about seven or eight verses in the Bible that, and this is in the King James Bible. We have to be specific here. The uh, Bible was the Old Testament, what we refer to as the Old Testament. The Jews refer to it as the Hebrew Bible. It was written in Hebrew. So the, the term unicorn doesn't exist in Hebrew. It's re'em is the word. And it's describing a one-horned, powerful beast. Usually he's described right up there with a bull or, or you know, some kind of a male, like a lion. He's described as ferocious you know so the translators of the king james bible chose the english word unicorn 
for this beast that's described, this Re'em, which we don't know exactly what it is. But, interestingly enough, the word unicorn does not necessarily imply a mythological beast because the rhinoceros is known in Latin as the rhinoceros unicornis, meaning the one-horned beast. It's a one-horned beast. Wow. And it's ferocious. A, a rhinoceros is a ferocious it beast. It could have been the rhinoceros or it some most likely animal. It was the rhinoceros because most likely because there are there are rhinos in Africa. And Africa's right there, right off the top right. of the, you know. Or it could have been any sort of extinct animal, anything with a horn on it. Anything Doesn't with a horn. Doesn't necessarily, so the... So the, the, the translation from from that to unicorn happened somewhere along the way, and we now believe that the Bible now says unicorn, when that's As, not the case. It's uni- Right. It says unicorn in the King James because the translators chose that word based upon the Latin word unicornis, which means one-horned animal. But now right. someone who's trying to debunk the Bible and make it look silly will point that out and go, well, the Bible mentions unicorns. But they're not talking about the little horse that we all know, my little pony with the little, you know, with the rainbow. Well, that's what they imply. So Right, but that's because they're trying to dumb down the story. So they're looking for inconsistencies like that. But they're not. When you look at the original Hebrew, it's Re'em, which doesn't, no one really knows what that beast was. Right. The ancient Hebrews knew what it was, but we don't know. Water into wine. That's another story that people make fun of what is that about did jesus really turn water into wine okay so that story is found in the new testament so that takes place right centuries after the stories of genesis much later um jesus would have had a copy of the old testament in his hand not a book but scrolls that were the books of genesis and exodus and leviticus this is interesting because the writers of the new testament were fluent in Greek. They wrote the New Testament in Greek. They were aware of Greek philosophy. If you were studying Greek and you had to learn how to read and write Greek in the ancient world, the first thing you learned was the Bible of the Greek world, and that was Homer's epic, right? Homer's Odyssey. Odyssey. Right, with the sirens and... Right, all of that. That was the Bible for the Greeks, and that had all the Greek gods in it, Right, it, it it talks about all the ancient gods, Apollo, and then all these these others. Now the 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 Bible contains myths. Some of it is historically accurate. There was a Pontius Pilate. There was a Jesus of Nazareth. You know, there was a Caesar Augustus, as mentioned in the New Testament. These were real historical people. But when you're talking about them, you use this fantastic metaphoric powerful, magical language in describing them because in the ancient world, when you wanted to tell a story about somebody, what you wanted to do was relate their character, not necessarily facts about them. Right. So you're never going to read anything in the New Testament that says Jesus' favorite food was a fish sandwich or something. What you're going to hear is Jesus was powerful. So to convey Jesus' power, you would often tell a story that was actually borrowed from another religion. So the story of turning water into wine comes from the the stories of the Bacchae. And the Bacchae were these people that worshipped the god Bacchus. And the god Bacchus was the god of wine in the time of Jesus. And the miracle that he was known to do 
was to turn water into wine. So when you have in the Gospel of John, Jesus turning water into wine, the Gospel writer is looking at you and winking and telling you, Jesus is greater than the religion of Bacchus. Wow. You see? Yeah. That's, that's how you did it. So you take this, your belief in an already powerful man and say, oh, our new God is better than yours. Is better than yours because he can do the same thing. He can do the same thing or better. But there was a story one time of Caesar, I believe it was Julius Caesar, taking a boat ride. And during the boat ride, there was a storm. But it says that all the people on board the ship were not afraid because Caesar was on board and Caesar was seen as a God, a living God during the time of Christ, right? So when you tell the story of Jesus on the boat and there's the great storm and Jesus calms the storm, remember that story where he, he says, hush, be still, and the storm stops? Yes. And his disciples, are they're terrified. Yes. They're on the boat. Again, the story is implying, oh yeah, you think Caesar's somebody? You should know this Jesus. He can stop a storm, you know? Now, are you expected to really believe that Jesus stopped the storm? I don't even think discussing that is, is relevant. What's relevant is saying this is a person who possesses power. This is a person who makes us feel in an unsafe situation like we're safe. Right. There's just so many nuances to these stories. Remember, right? Julius Caesar was the first Caesar, the first Roman Caesar. Right? Julius Caesar had a son. He didn't want his son to be Caesar. So he got his adoptive nephew, the nephew he adopted, as a son who was known as Octavian. Octavian was then pronounced the new Caesar. He changed his name to Caesar Augustus. Augustus means the one to be worshipped, the one to be venerated. So now I am Caesar, the one to be worshipped. Caesar Augustus. And Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one. You see, they had titles, right? The titles dictated their power and who they right, were, right. their status. It was a status thing. So now, because Julius Caesar was declared by the Roman Senate to be a god, what did that make Octavian, his adoptive son? The son of a god. Who was Jesus? The son of God. So Let's that see. was even almost borrowed in a way. It is. The template. It's the template. a template. Yeah. It's always used to express power. It's when, it, when that is taught, it's taught in terms of the son of this mythical, all-powerful man who created the universe. But from what you're saying is it's really a title that was already in many ways in use. It was in use. Uh, it was used religiously, but it's also used politically. It had political implications. Right. To say that Jesus was the son of God, not only the son of God, but what do Christians proclaim him to be? The only son of God, the only begotten son of God, meaning God only has one son. So to say that Jesus no was more. the son of yeah. God was to say that Caesar Augustus wasn't. Wow. So it's a smack so in the face. So that's why the Romans were already upset then. They were already upset. So when, you, <laughs> when you're reading the Gospels, not only are you reading what is considered high treason, 
to Caesar, it's high treason to declare this peasant uh, carpenter from Nazareth to be the son of God with all power and authority who died on a Roman cross, mind you. Someone your own people have executed. The Romans executed him. So what are the implications? You know what I mean? Today, if we wanted to talk about Jesus, if he were alive today, and we wanted to give him an honorific title, we would say something like, Jesus, you know, he's our president of the United States. You would pick a title that everyone understands wields power. So he's the son of God. Now, you can believe he literally is if, if you are a Christian. And it, so Christians believe he literally was. We, we, we do. And you I'm take a it Christian, more literally. And we, and we do take it literally, but I understand the background of the term. You see, and I understand what it's trying to convey. And so what I tell people is you don't have to necessarily believe the literal interpretation of it to understand the historical context of why they use these titles. So in the ancient world, if I were a uh, Roman citizen, there was the cult of the emperor. So the cult of the emperor was the official religion. There were many, you could worship any god you wanted in Rome. They didn't have a problem with it. You want to worship Jesus? Not a problem. But you must also worship Caesar as God. And you must give Caesar worship. And you know what was the common expression to express devotion to Caesar? You would say Caesar is Lord. What? Caesar is Lord. Caesar is your Lord. <laughs> okay. Because he so is. Look. He was the one that ruled the world at that time. Like a Lord. Like like they have He's the titles in, in England. Yeah, like a Lord. Right. But I mean, we're using the English, but it wouldn't be that. Right, in, right, right. In Latin, it would be um, um, Kyrios. Right? It would be it would be Caesar at Kyrios. Caesar is Lord. Meaning Caesar is your master. Lord is another word for master. Your, your, your owner. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So in the ancient world, yeah. Caesar really was Lord. You paid taxes to Caesar. If you went against Caesar, you got hung on a cross or you were killed in battle. Your people were conquered and he was taken and now you get to be a slave in Rome. So with so then now Jesus is now Lord. So now what happens is the followers of Jesus who was murdered on a Roman cross in the name of Caesar, what was the placard that you read above his cross, right? Where they where he's crucified, there's always the words above his cross. It would say in Latin, Jesus Nazarenus, Rex Judeum, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. So the reason they put that there wasn't because the Romans really believed he was the king of the Jews. What they were saying is, this is what you think you are? Now look at you. You're a king. Oh, yeah, you're a king. All right, you're hanging on a cross. You're dying. So it was a punishment. It was a mockery of who he was. But now, no one remembers the name of Caesar Augustus, you know, other than the fact that we celebrate the month of August. So they do remember not his realizing name in a way. Yeah. the month of August it, yeah. is, is actually devoted to him. And now, you would say Jesus is Lord, and everybody knows that term, and everybody knows that little peasant carpenter from Nazareth, this backwater town in the middle of a, of the boondocks of Israel up north somewhere. Everybody knows him. Nobody can tell you the story of Octavian, but everybody can tell you the story of Jesus. See? So, so it was both high treason and low lampoon, because they were lampooning Caesar. They're mocking him. 
by calling Jesus these things. Noah's Ark, another story. What does, what metaphor or allegory does Noah's Ark live in? Well, I mean, we look at the story of Noah's Ark and we know that this is not actual history. It's not history in the sense that um, we can trace back to all of the ancient cultures around the Middle East in that area of the world had some kind of a flood story. So there was certainly some kind of a deluge that took place that was in the minds and the memories of the people who lived there long before they began to write. So you have different cultures where it's not Noah, it's another guy, and he's got a different name, and the story details are turned around a bit. Same story, a whole bunch of animals get in a boat. You know, in, um, in the story of the Bible, it's two animals. It's always in pairs, right? Two lions, two tigers, whatever it was. Um, there's also, incidentally, another place in the Bible, I can't remember it at the moment, where the story's told, but now it's seven of each type, you know? So that's letting us already know that there were two versions of the story that made it into the Bible. Well, Al, thank you so much. That's, that was welcome. very enlightening. Anything else in terms of the the the, 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 uh, the allegories, uh, any other one that we can think of? Um, I mean, just, I guess what I'm trying to leave with uh, our listeners is just that... Um, it's time to re-examine these stories in the Bible and, and look for the historical context for a lot of them. And when I say historical, I don't mean always believing that the story itself is historical, but understanding the historical setting that gave birth to the story. Get it? So it's different. Right. You're not looking at it as pure history the way we do history now, which is... You know, in 1892, so-and-so did so-and-so. This is not how they did it back then. When they told stories, they conveyed the character of the person. When they wrote the New Testament, they want you to understand the type of man Jesus was, why he's worth following. He's compassionate. He's loving. He's, he's merciful. You know, these, these are the things. Mm -hmm. But to sell the story, you got to wrap it in a nice package. We all know what marketing is. And this is Christian marketing. I mean, he can turn water into wine. He can walk on water. You know, he can raise the dead. And the stories they didn't necessarily make up from thin air. They, they either borrowed from someone else or it was a symbol for something else. A, a, they, a lot of times for... they may have borrowed from already existing wow. um, pagan stories. But what they did was they gave it a, a Christian spin, right? You know, it's... um. Uh, if, if you want to use a modern term, we would call it sampling. They were sampling. Wow. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, if you want to take an old song, throw a new spin on it, put put some new lyrics up on it. There's nothing new under put, the sun, right? <laughs> there's, right, which is also in the Bible, book, book of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. But um, see what I'm saying? How that even that expression, all these expressions have a biblical basis where we don't come to, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where we don't, we don't realize that this is the foundation. You know, when Jesus says, if someone takes your cloak, give him your tunic also. The tunic was underneath the cloak. So that's your shirt. So I gave you the shirt off my back. Heard that expression before? Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, these are, right? Jesus said, 
if a Roman centurion made you carry his equipment one mile, you were obligated to carry as a, as a Jew. When a Roman forced you to carry something, you had to carry it for at least a mile. So Jesus knew if you can keep your Jewish neighbor from having to be the one that carries it the next time around, you go the extra mile. Get, the, get where we get yeah, the expression yeah, from? Yeah. Jesus is teaching you, go the extra mile. Like these are, these are things that we've so incorporated into our, they're so ubiquitous to Western civilization, these, these ideas. The idea that the first should be last, which is an expression Jesus uses often. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. What does that mean? Meaning the people who consider themselves the first, the people who are the most proud, are going to be humbled. And the people who are the most humbled, who are the most downtrodden, will be treated like first-class citizens. That's basically me and you right now. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> right? But, right? You know, this is, this is what, but this is what we have in terms of our culture when you get on a bus and it tells you to give up your seat to a handicapped person. That would be the last. He would be the last person who could ever get a seat on that bus. But now you're asked to give him the front seat. The at, the, at the bus, you, the last have become the first. This is part of Jesus's. This is part of his ethics, which we carry with us to this day. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Al. You're very welcome. We'll see you guys next episode. Next episode. Bye.